The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. So this is a big night. This is a big night that some of us have been dreading for a while. It's a big night that many of us have been looking forward to for a while. It's the finale of Breaking Bad. No idea what I'm talking about, then... Just listen to the end moral piece of this whole thing I'm going to say. <laughs> the rest of it you can disregard. For those of you who are not caught up um, and a little bit behind the rest of us, I promise, I promise no spoilers. I promise. One of my other favorite TV shows, Lost, the big reveal, the big surprise in season three, someone ruined, someone spoiled for me, and I'm still almost maybe over it. So I won't give you any spoilers today, and I recognize that one of the reasons that some of you are so invested in this show is because of my incessant posting on Facebook about it. So you can blame me if ultimately you find it too difficult to deal with or just unworthy. So what I can tell you is this, without giving away any spoilers at all, it is about this guy here, or that guy over there. Harry, I hope your secret life is less troublesome than his. (laughs) This is Walter White, the formerly mild-mannered chemistry teacher who we meet at the start of the series, who gets an awful medical diagnosis, lung cancer, incurable. He's worried about everything that he's built being taken away from him as his life will soon end. He has a disabled son. He has a child on the way. And he wonders how can he not leave his family destitute. And his answer is that he becomes, with his chemistry expertise, a manufacturer of methamphetamine. And then eventually, a drug kingpin. And he does absolutely monstrous things as he pursues this path. The story, as the creators of the show tell us, was that they wanted to see what it would be like to turn Mr. Chips into Scarface. And they've done that. The interesting thing about the show, and it's a thriller, it's sometimes a horror, it's sometimes funny, even. Why I love it best is because it is a very deep tragedy about a flawed human being. Because here's the thing we recognize early on in Breaking Bad, this isn't really giving away too much, is that Walter could have made other choices. His path did not have to turn out the way that it has, where one action begets another action, begets another action of sorrow and violence and involves so many people in his circle of hurt and harm. He could have made other choices, but because of his ego, because of his desire to control, he has wounded himself and many others. To borrow a phrase from the great Franciscan teacher Richard Rohr, he cannot or will not transform his pain, and so he ends up transmitting it to others. There's a simple sentence that I didn't make up. 
from which the title for today's message comes. Two words, four words actually, but two words repeated. Hurt people hurt people. Adjective the first time, verb the next. Hurt people hurt people. It's one of the biggest challenges in our spiritual lives. Even if we haven't suffered or caused others to suffer in the same way that Walter White has, how to deal with our broken hearts, how to deal with our disappointments, how to deal with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that visit us all simply because we are alive. This great spiritual challenge, I say, is learning to become, becoming hurt people who don't hurt people. Now, I recognize I'm making a big assumption here, which is that we've all been hurt, and we probably also have all hurt others. I think if we live long enough, and actually it's not even a measure of years, although if we do live long enough, it increases the chances of it, but more importantly, if we have loved deeply enough, we're going to know what it's like to have our hearts break. We can pretend that this isn't the truth of our lives. We could try to live another way. We could try to protect ourselves all the way throughout this life, never opening our hearts and never knowing what it's like to love and maybe then knowing what it's like not to have a broken heart. But most of us here don't experience that. And as been said of all of us about life, no one here gets out alive. This is the way it is. Although we could pretend. I remember this movie from a few years ago. The 40-year-old virgin, Steve Carell, loved this movie. I love my raunchy movies with big, wide-open hearts. So one of the things that Steve Carell is doing there is he's polishing a display case. And in that display case, he has his Aquaman figurine, his action figure. And he has his, his, his Steve Austin from the Six Million Dollar Man action figure. I remember this one. You could look through the eye with the bionic vision. And it wasn't bionic vision at all. It was just looking through a hole in this doll's head. But, and, and he's got a Batman in there and a Wolfman. And they kind of represent Steve Carell. Because it's not that really he's like a, a prude sexually. He's a 40-year-old virgin because he's afraid of real intimacy. And so what those dolls represent are his cloistered life. And it's not a happy life. It's a disconnected life. On the whole other range in the spectrum, one of the first stories perhaps some of us ever heard was about this desire to have a real heart. You know the story of Pinocchio. What does Pinocchio want more than anything else? To be real. To be a real boy. To move from wood, solid wood, to soft flesh and bone, which can be broken. Ernest Hemingway, who knew in his own life and wrote about it in other people's lives, had this wonderful quote that I try to work with and live with regularly. He said, life breaks us all inevitably, and we are stronger at the broken places. Now, I'd like to believe that that second half of his sentence is always inevitably right. But it's not. It is an opportunity, however. But we all know people, and maybe we sometimes have been people, that the sentence goes like this. Life breaks us all inevitably, 
and we are bitter at the broken places. Life breaks us all inevitably, and we are cruel at the broken places. Life breaks us all inevitably, and we are despairing at the broken places. Recognizing that life will break us all inevitably, and that hearts are made to be broken and still go on beating, how is it then that we engage that capacity to be strong at the broken places? For me, it comes down to the reality and the invitation, the spiritually transformative experience of forgiveness, of asking for forgiveness and offering it to others. And I do not say forgiveness as an obligation. Forgiveness as an obligation does none of us any good. I mean, the stories I have heard over the years, most often sad to say, that have first come out of the voices of clergy people and clergymen, is you must forgive. You're being a bad Jew, a bad Christian, a bad Buddhist. You're being a bad you-you if you don't forgive. You're a failure. And all that does is adds hurt to heartache. But forgiveness, when it's freely chosen is not an obligation, but an invitation to know that we can experience a deeper path of liberation, that our life does not have to be repeating hurt after repeating hurt after repeating hurt after repeating hurt, the same old thing day after day after day, age after age, perhaps handed down as an awful inheritance to the next generation that comes after us. We see the liberating logic of forgiveness, when we can scratch the surface of other people who hurt or harm others and we recognize that monsters don't grow in a vacuum. If you really get to hear the story sometimes of people who have caused harm to others, so often what we hear is that the first thing they knew in their lives was harm done to them. The poet W.H. Auden has a wonderful phrase about this. It's not a happy phrase, but it's still real. I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. We give as we get, right? Of course, it doesn't have to be that way. But I even like to remember how deep this can run within us when I think of someone like the former dictator of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. And you don't have to be a fan, as I am not a fan of our post-September 11th, 2001 foreign policy, to admit at the same time that Saddam Hussein was a vicious, violent, evil human being. And you know what some of Saddam Hussein's first memories of as a child were? He was taken out by his family, by his father, to witness repeated executions. Hurt people, hurt people. And our hurts may not be on the realm of what Saddam Hussein did, but still the principle abides. To maintain this intention to not cause hurt or harm is a form of forgiving life, forgiving ourselves, forgiving other people, instead of staying stuck. Now, the truth is we all know that we have all experienced relationships that are meant to end. (laughs) 
it actually is a good thing that some of these relationships come to an end. I uh, remember once uh, a, a teacher I had at the end of a retreat said, you know, the, 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 the real work of forgiveness is to recognize that sometimes we have to put people out of our lives. We're not good for them or they're not good for us. And yet at the same time, we have to put them out of our lives where forgiveness begins is recognizing that we don't put them out of our hearts. We continue to work with our difficult experience. We continue to work with that difficult experience, that harm, that hurt we may have caused or other people may have caused to us because there is this hope that life as it will be does not have to be the life as it was. This is why forgiveness is an intention. It is an aspiration. It is something that I find in my life doesn't happen just like the snap of a finger. It's something that takes time. And if you've been here for other parts of my message series, you know that that's what the word intention means. It's not just an aim and aspiration. It's too easy to kind of make that a heady, a, a heady thing. Intention is stretch. And so, yes, this is the portion of the message in which we're going to do some chair yoga, as I promise you to do every single time we gather for this message series. So close your eyes if you would. Put your feet on the ground. Put your hands by, maybe loosen them out a little bit. Put them by the side of your body. Let the eyes drop closed and just come into that awareness of breathing. And slowly, slowly, slowly lift the hands up over the head towards the ceiling and the sky beyond the ceiling and stretch out those fingers from each other. Stretch out the fingers away from each other. Checking in with the stretch at the edge, at the tip of the thumb, at the ring finger, at the pointer finger, at the pinky and yes, get in touch with that stretch at the, at the center of the middle finger, that finger that we might want to use <laughs> when we're feeling really angry or really hurt. Check in with the stretch. Do a middle finger meditation right now. Stretch out through there and either kind of deepen into that stretch, raise up a little bit more or ease up onto it. Wherever you are feeling the edge of that stretch, find your intention there to stretch. Then putting the hands together overhead and bringing the hands down slowly. And maybe holding the hands for a moment on the chest, right over that heart center. Maybe especially if the heart's feeling a little wounded or tender or broken today. And then maybe give just a little bow that this is a moment of stretch for us and being in touch. Forgiveness is that stretch that is a creative tension, a valuable creative tension, kind of the way the song sings about it. Notice it's not an accomplishment yet. I've got down to the heart of the matter. I'm done. <laughs> Trying to get down to the heart of the matter thinking it's about forgiveness. The first step is that willingness to open space with what is unfinished for us. In our hurt, it is real easy to stay in that place of hardness of heart and to remember that if our aspiration, our intention, our stretch is for forgiveness, that we can learn to kind of melt that hardness of heart 
that we can learn to soften with some of those tough places that maybe are really the tender places, but we're afraid of the tenderness. I think of this image when I think about learning to kind of work with that intention around forgiveness. I think of that ice cube just on a kitchen counter, slowly melting. You know, the easiest way to turn an ice cube into water, take a blowtorch to it. (laughs) We could quickly change it, but the water would scald, we could not drink it, or it would evaporate and flee away. It takes time and careful attention and loving awareness if we wish to be able to forgive, if we wish to become hurt people who don't hurt people. And to give ourselves that space is a wonderful gift. Because in that space, what I have learned from my life, both from being forgiven and from learning to forgive others, is we touch the reality of two very important words that are associated with some different spiritual traditions. Maybe it's words you're very familiar with. Maybe it's words you just know of. And those two words are karma and grace. Now, most often, karma and grace are set apart from each other. Karma versus grace. Bono said a few years ago, very famously, he did not believe in karma. He believed in grace. I think that's a false choice. Too often we hear like, you know, Eastern religions like Buddhism or Hinduism. Those are, those are uh, religions of karma. And then Judaism, Christianity, Islam, those are traditions of grace. Well, in Judaism and Christianity and Islam, you have traditions of what's called retributive justice. You do bad, you're going to get bad. <laughs> you do good, you're going to get good. The word for that is karma. <laughs> in the Eastern traditions, Buddhism especially, there's traditions in Pure Land Buddhism of the Amitama Buddha, who's kind of like a Jesus figure that people very often call out to in those places of despair, of desperation. Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion, especially in Tibetan traditions, is recognized as a source that one can open oneself up to as a source of grace. So yes, karma, cause and effect, Actions have consequences. Those consequences lead to other actions that become other consequences for good or for ill. Grace, the opportunity to write a new story, the opportunity to have the future not be like the past. I believe that grace and karma are not separate. And in the reality of knowing what forgiveness is for us, we recognize the necessity of both. That there are certain actions and consequences that have led us right here to where we are. And in waking up to our karma, we in fact wake up to the opportunity that there may be a more graceful future for us. A different future. New beginnings in which we can try to live in a way so that even if we are hurt, we are not hurting others. And by the way, I don't believe that karma is an individualized thing. When sometimes talk about your karma or my karma, you know, that can actually be sometimes a cruel way. It can be like a blame the victim kind of way. The truth is, is that karma is transpersonal. Karma is interpersonal. I mean, we all get inheritances from our family. Some of us get inheritances for, you know, uh, being tall or being short, being skinny or being large. Uh, Some of us get the inheritance of a predisposition to happiness and easy joy. Some of us get the predisposition to despair and anxiety and alcoholism. We all are inheritors of different things. I love the way that Josh Ritter, one of my favorite uh, singer-songwriters, he put it this way. He said, every heart is a package tangled up in knots someone else tied. 
I love that. Every heart is a package tangled up and not someone else tied. And when we get to that place of sometimes recognizing how tangled up the knots in our hearts are, well, great, that's a recognition of our karma, the karma that's right here and right now, the actions and consequences that led to this moment. And in that unknotting, in that taking apart that sometimes goes against our grain when we're at our most brokenhearted, when we're at our most hurt, and all we want to do is just pull that knot even tighter because we're just so pissed off. We just want to batten down the hatches. Instead, to recognize the knot can be taken apart slowly and gently. In those moments, we recognize the liberation of what it is to turn from bitterness to the capacity for wholeness, to turn from harm to healing and helping. This is why forgiveness is not weakness. It's one of the most difficult lessons out there, and by out there I mean in the general culture, that forgiveness can be extolled, but really as most people treat forgiveness, it's a weakness. You're a sucker. You're being taken advantage of. In our world, that is tit for tat, eye for eye. Forgiveness is strength. It is inviting ourselves to evolve beyond our wounds, to not hold on to our resentments. And by the way, you break apart that word resentment. You know what that means? Resentiment. <laughs> feeling over and over and over and over the same sentiment, the same feeling being caught in that loop. How do we move beyond our resentments? How do we live beyond the Hatfields and the McCoys way of living? Which isn't even just about within this life. Hatfields and McCoys, it gets passed on generation to generation. Fighting, 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 fighting to the point they don't even recognize what they're fighting about anymore. They just recognize the nature of their life is to fight. That's how lost hurt people hurting people can be. The logic, the sad logic of Jimmy Hoffa, the corrupt labor leader who said, I do unto others as they do unto me, but worse. <laughs> That's hurt people hurting people. And so we don't want to get trapped there to recognize holding this intention to not be a hurt person hurting someone else. It is to recognize that there is tremendous strength in forgiveness. Strength in the face of perhaps this person, Desmond Tutu, Bishop Desmond Tutu. And look at that title, No Future Without Forgiveness. It's absolutely true. Those of you who might remember from the 90s when South Africa was emerging from its brutal, vicious, oppressive legacy of apartheid. And South Africa still is very far from a perfect society. It's a society still riven by poverty and race, but, Rwanda, but, but South Africa could have become Rwanda, could have become Cambodia, could have become the killing fields. And instead, the people, many people of South Africa, chose to engage in what they called the truth and reconciliation process, in which both perpetrators and victims of violence came forward to tell their stories. And I remember, and perhaps you remember this as well too, Bishop Tutu sitting there holding the hands of some of the perpetrators and some of the victims. And at the end of him telling the, hearing these stories, just breaking down in sobs, just putting his head in his hands and crying because that was the best witness he could do. And I think it's the best witness he could have done. 
just to bow down and acknowledge the profundity and the presence of our human hurt. We plant these seeds of forgiveness, even if we don't feel it yet. We know it's not about just the fate of nations of falling to keep them from falling into warfare. It's about our everyday stuff, the everyday ways in which we suffer, the other day, all everyday ways in which we struggle. I heard this great story on Facebook, and I put it up. Uh, some of you may have seen it. It's about uh, these people here. The woman in blue is Carol Fowler. And Carol Fowler and her husband, Willie, were preparing for one of the most happy uh, events in the life of a family, families that have kids. They were preparing for their eldest daughter's wedding. Glorious thing, huge wedding. 200 people were going to be there. And then 40 days out before the wedding, it was canceled. Now, in interviews about why the wedding was canceled, they, they never acknowledge the exact reason, except you can hear in their voices is that there's some very real hurt there and some very real disappointment there. And the reason we know their story is because they were not hurt people who hurt people. They took all that money, all that stuff they had paid for, that lavish dinner for 200 people, and they invited 200 homeless people who they did not know to come and sit at the welcome banquet table that was intended for her daughter and all of the people who loved her daughter. This is what happens when we become hurt people who don't hurt people. We become hurt people who help people. This is what it is to be strong in the broken places. After life breaks us. Cower Fowler said, you know, we're just regular working people and anybody can do this. She's absolutely right. Talk about transforming pain and not transmitting it. Stories like this remind me of that ice cube. They just melt my heart to see people who have kind of every excuse to be bitter. Every excuse to lash out. Every excuse to close down. And instead to choose to open up and extend themselves in gracious ways back towards life. Reminds me with the final image I want to share with you today of this character. Tony Soprano. James Gandolfini, may he rest in peace, who brought to life very much someone in the Walter White lineage of compelling, vicious anti-heroes. Tony Sopranos, you might know, this is from one of the first seasons, the first season of The Sopranos, is from an episode in which Tony Soprano, who's a violent guy, he's a mob boss, and also lives in the suburbs in Bergen, New Jersey. He does a lot of vicious things. And in this episode, he's deciding if he wants to do something vicious to actually someone who might deserve it. It turns out the coach of his high school daughter's soccer team has been having you can't even call it a quote-unquote sexual affair. It's, it has been sexually abusing one of his students, a 17-year-old girl. And all the other parents learn about it, and especially because they're mobbed up here, they decide they're going to kill this guy. Until Tony is asked, why do you have to be the policeman of the world? Maybe the police can handle it. And Tony says, Okay. And he does not kill this person. And the police swoop in 
and arrest him justifiably for his crimes. So this is from the final scene of that episode where Tony, who is not a model of mental, moral, or spiritual health, has gone out and gotten exceedingly drunk on the same day that he started Prozac to deal with his anxiety and his depression. And so he comes in stumbling, blithering drunk, passing out, about to pass out, not even making it to the second floor of their mansion, passing out on the floor. And his wife, Carmel, is putting a pillow under his head. And the last words he says, I didn't hurt nobody. I didn't hurt nobody. Now, Tony Soprano doesn't continue to stretch in this way, or The Sopranos would be a totally different show. <laughs> but that phrase, even if the stakes are not as high for us, and I hope they're not as having to take, or think about taking another person's life, but that phrase, I didn't hurt nobody. You were angry, and you didn't hurt nobody. You were in deep grief, and you didn't hurt nobody. You were afraid. I was afraid. And we didn't hurt nobody. That's a stretch worth maintaining. To recognize that we can all become hurt people with our broken hearts. Some of which I can see are really present for some of you right now that we can become hurt people who do not hurt people, that we can become something much better. We can become people, hurt people, who heal people, including and starting with ourselves. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. divine spark that calls us here into this moment, into this day, and that gives us a sense of past, of the action, the consequences, the hurts, the healings, the harms, the helping that has brought us right to this moment, to this realization of our karma, of everything that causes us to be. May we allow ourselves, specifically if we are feeling a broken heart, to make that heart a tender heart and not wall it off or hide it away. May we give ourselves time, patience, a holy and sacred diligence to recognize that new life, if we wish it and stretch toward it, is always being born within us. May we invite ourselves to be healers and helpers May we allow ourselves to respond yes to that calling of love that is here right now in this moment. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.